Well, welcome, and we're so glad you're here. Um, the Abraham Kuyper, who founded the Free University of Amsterdam in 1880, said, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The importance of the Waterstone uh, lecture series and its purpose is to help us think with the mind of Christ about the important questions and issues of our time. Christians are strategically prepared and placed to engage people from every part of our surrounding culture. Yet, we have all too often, as Christians, been prone to two extremes. One, we ignore problems and people as we sit around waiting for heaven. Or two, we become activist power players who use political clout to scream as loud as we can with our money. True kingdom passion is for action, but informed, thoughtful, Jesus-directed action as he shapes us with scripture. This is why we are here, because we love to learn, but even more because we must always be learning to love. And so welcome to the Waterstone Lecture Series. Our topic tonight is a Christian response to the opioid epidemic. Our speaker tonight, I am honored to introduce. Donald Bechtold, MD, is a graduate of the University of Colorado School of Medicine, where he also received his postgraduate specialty training in general adult psychiatry and his subspecialty training in child and adolescent psychiatry. Following completion of training, Dr. Beckold joined the full-time faculty of the University of Colorado School of Medicine in 1985, where he taught and served until 2001. He also served as adjunct faculty at Denver Seminary in their Master of Arts counseling program. As a contract consultant, Dr. Bechtold has served with the Indian Health Service. He served with the manuscript review panels on child abuse and neglect, the International Journal and American Indian and Alaska Native Mental Health Research Journal, the Journal of the National Center, and the editorial boards of the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And I'm only reading about half the paragraph to give you a sense of his broad uh, teaching. Among other research projects, Don was the recipient of the National Institute of Mental Health Individually Faculty Scholar Award, studying American Indian adolescent suicide. Don was also a principal investigator of the clinical research and screening project related to the tragedy at Columbine High School. Dr. Bechtold teaches, consults, publishes, and presents both regionally and nationally. Since 2001, Dr. Beckhold has served as the medical director of the Jefferson Center for Mental Health and their vice president of healthcare and integration since 2011. Dr. Bechtold is board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry, Neurology, in both general psychiatry and in child adolescent psychiatry. He is a distinguished fellow of both American Psychiatric Association 
and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. I would just like to add that for the past four years, I've served on the board at the Jefferson Center for Mental Health, and so I have had a front row seat to observe Dr. Beckhold uh, over these years, and I have found him to be not only a sterling leader and manager in a large organization, not only a distinguished psychiatrist, but even more, I have found him to be a deeply devoted follower of Christ in a very challenging world. So would you join me and give a Waterstone welcome to Dr. Don Bechtold. Thank you, Larry. That was very gracious. You know, mostly it just means, yeah, I really am very old. <laughs> how you do all those things is you don't die. You just keep doing them. So. But it's really a pleasure to be here tonight. Larry had asked me about this a uh, number of months ago. Uh, he asked either if it was something I might do myself or if I could help uh, line somebody up for it. Um, and I said, yeah, I'll do it. So here we are tonight, and I'm going to do my best to, uh, to do it. The handout that I've prepared for you, you know, by no means is it intended to stand alone. We're just going to kind of work our way through it um, together. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to amplify on within it. Uh, at any point, if you want to stop and talk about something, please feel free to do so. Again, I'd like this to be, you know, very casual, interactive. Uh, not a formal lecture, if you will. You know, I've begun with the historical timeline. I think it's really interesting when you uh, read about it and when you see how far back opiates go in history. Um, you know, and I think it's interesting that here we are in the midst of a church talking about it. And you see here, 3400 BC, the opium poppy cultivated in lower Mesopotamia. They called it the joy plant. Um, and they passed it on to the successive empires, beginning with the Assyrian and then the Babylonian. Um, you know, they're not talking about the Persian, but I don't imagine that the Persians were left out, probably them as well, and the Egyptians, and I suspect the Romans as well. You know, I was thinking about this as well, again, as we, uh, you know, in church here, if you think back of the uh, Old Testament prophets, you know, think back reading Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, you know, was written during the time of the ascent of the Assyrian Empire. Lots of what Isaiah prophesied about, though, was really in terms of the end of the Babylonian exile uh, and the promise that uh, God would be faithful to the exiles and would, uh, would bring them home one day. And you think of the uh, emperors, you know, Tiglath-Pileser of uh, Assyria, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, uh, you know, you read about them in Isaiah or any of the prophets, and you never think that, you know, maybe these guys were high on opium. Uh, but there's altogether that possibility. I mean, literally, opium was a part of their world, as we see here. We know that's how far back in time it goes back to these ancient empires. You know, you flash forward 2,000 years from 3400 to 1300 B.C., uh, Egyptian poppy trade is flourishing and they're beginning to export it. They have trade routes that go across the Mediterranean into Greece, Carthage. Carthage is now modern-day Tunisia uh, in Europe. 
Um, you know, we move ahead another 900, 800, 900 years, and we see Hippocrates, the uh, father of medicine, uh, talking about the medical usefulness of opium in treating internal diseases and diseases of women and epidemics. Uh, and one of the things that you'll see as we go through this is this sort of unusual mix in terms of opiates and uh, from abuse on the one hand to medical promotion on the other hand. Uh, and sadly, uh, the medical promotion is, is greatly tied to the abuse. You know, you'll see in the handout a couple of places in here, I just emphasize that um, when we talk about the opioid crisis, one of the sad things about it is that it's entirely of human design. It's entirely man-made. Um, you know, and there's really two f driving forces behind it, and I think as we go through this, you'll see it. You know, one is greed, uh, and the other is self-indulgence. And between the two of those, um, you know, for going on 6,000 years now, um, this has literally been an issue. But again, Hippocrates uh, began to endorse it from the medical vantage point. So here we have Persia, Alexander the Great, bringing it to uh, Persia and to India. Moving into the A.D. years, uh, 400, it's introduced into China, and we're going to talk in a minute or two here about the Opium Wars, and it's really interesting when you see um, how this was brought into China and what was wrought on China uh, through hundreds and hundreds of years in terms of uh, opium trade. Uh, it's interesting, again, sort of historically, we take a step back, we listen to the news, we look at what China has become today. Um, you know, I think we understandably have sort of an adverse reaction to it because of, you know, egregious human rights violations and uh, lots of things that, that, of course, we wouldn't be in favor of. Um, on the other hand, when you look back in time, you, uh, you see it wasn't that long ago that the Chinese were incredible victims of much of the rest of the world, England, France, um, even the U.S., um, not so much the U.S. as a country, um, but certain individuals who made themselves wealthy through opium uh, smuggling into China. So, you know, the opiate, when we talk again about the opiate issue, it is so intertwined with history. Um, and I think that will become clearer and clearer as we go through this today. So by AD 400, we see it brought uh, into China by Arab traders. Interestingly, you know, around 1300 AD, the European historical record, it disappears. It's not talked about, it's not written about. You know, this is during the time of the Inquisition, and this was really apparently based on hate and prejudice. Um, opium was uh, associated with the East, East was associated with the devil, um, so it simply wasn't talked or written about. But. You know, we know what happens when uh, things aren't talked or written about. It doesn't necessarily mean that they go away. And no doubt it uh, continued to uh, thrive, but probably under the service surface rather than overtly. Um, by 1500, it's being brought into Portuguese, this time by the Chinese. Um, 1527, um, so what, 227 years later, uh, since it disappeared from the European historical record, it's reappearing again in the medical literature um, in the form of laudanum. And uh, if you watch John Wayne movies, you'll see the Duke using laudanum in some of them. 
Um, laudanum is basically uh, a combination of alcohol and morphine. So it's a liquid form with a combination of the two. Um, but, uh, you know, the laudanum was named uh, Stones of Immortality. So, I mean, when I said before that, you know, it's greed on the one hand, it's self-indulgence on the other, you see the self-indulgence just by these names, the joy plant, the Stones of Immortality. You know, India became huge in it. By 1606, they were uh, shipping it a number of places, including back to England. Um, the Dutch became involved in it. They were the first to uh, uh, learn that if you smoked it, you would have a more rapid uh, effect of it um, because it, uh, the inhalation of it is a, a quicker way of, of inducing the effect from it. Um, and they began exporting it to Southeast Asia. You know, Turkey became huge in it. By 1800, we see Turkey exporting it both to Europe and to the United States. 1803, the active ingredient was discovered. You know, Principum Somniferum, which is morphine, um, which is the active ingredient of, of uh, opium. Now, 1816, John Jacob Astor joins the uh, opium smuggling trade. So let's talk a little bit about this because this is, uh, this is interesting. So when you all think of John Jacob Astor, what do you think of? Does anyone think of the Titanic? If you do, um, the thing to remember is that that was the grandson, the, excuse me, the great, great, great grandson. Um, John Jacob Astor I was the one who uh, was the uh, opium trader. So here's a little bit I just looked up today because I was kind of interested in it. So this was John Jacob Astor I, English guy in London, uh, works in his family's dairy business. Then he goes on and works with a, a brother manufacturing and selling musical instruments. He decides to come to the U.S. He doesn't come a wealthy man. He comes with, they say, seven flutes and absolutely nothing more that he comes with. He has a butcher here, a brother already here who's a butcher. He works with his butcher brother. He has another brother who's a baker. He works with his baker brother. So we've got the butcher, the baker, but we don't have the candlestick maker. Then he begins working for a uh, Canadian fur company. And this, of course, is what you, you know, begin to associate the Astors with, were the, uh, um, the fur trade. Um, but then the War of 1812 breaks out, and you know he's tried to expand to the northwest of the U.S. where there's a, uh, a large fur market, but there's the Canadian uh, and the Brits coming down, and it all gets convoluted because of the War of 1812. He ends up losing a lot of what he's accumulated to that point in time. He does two things. One, he lobbies the U.S. government to enact legislation to basically outlaw foreigners from the fur trade business, which ultimately they did. The irony was that uh, the uh, company that he had founded that had been bought out by the Canadians when this law was enacted, um, they had to sell it back to him. So he was able to uh, reclaim his company. The other thing that he did, though, was to start smuggling opium. Uh, and this was, again, a part of uh, where the Astor fortune came from. Whoopsie. That's uh, not supposed to happen. 
There we go. Um, well, sort of. No, no, it's fine, Larry. It's fine. I'll just hold this. 1816, he purchases 10 tons of opium from the Ottoman Empire, ships it to Canton, China. Now, opium has been uh, illegal for 17 years in China at this point in time. But, uh, you know, he purchases 10 tons, sends it to Canton, continues this for two years. Then in 1819, apparently he had made enough money and his fur business was back in business enough that he got back out of the opium business. Uh, but, you know, the interesting thing, again, we hear of John Jacob Astor, we think of the fourth, we think of him dying in the Titanic, you know, had his great-great-great-grandfather not engaged in opium smuggling, he might not have been able to afford first-class passage on the Titanic. Um, so these things, you know, have a way of, of coming around. Um, but again, you know, this is the, uh, the greed side. You know, John Keats... Um, and again, I read a little bit about this today, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, it wasn't just Keats, but uh, all of the romantic uh, poets of the day, uh, Crabbe, Coleridge, De Quincey, Lord Byron, Keats, and Percy Shelley, um, are all said to have imbibed on opium, whether for medicinal or recreational uses. In fact, all of the Romantic poets, with the exception of William Wordsworth, appear to have used it at some point. Coleridge began using opium in 1791 to re relieve rheumatism, later believed that it made his body harmonize with his soul, was said to have written in a letter to his brother George, Laudanum gave me repose, not sleep, but you, I believe, know how divine that repose is. What a spot of enchantment, a green spot of fountain and flowers and trees in the very heart of a waste of sands. Um, and people debate whether when he wrote Kubla Khan and the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, oh, thank you, Larry, uh, these were uh, contributed to by, uh, by opium. Shelley. Um, was said to have used opium to alter his state of thinking and free his mind uh, to dampen his nerves. Again, laudanum was the form that he was using. Um, he opined that it allowed the individual to question societal norms and beliefs while allowing for ideas of radical social change form. Um, he thought that it created confusion between cause and effect and between memory and forgetfulness. Um, and he sort of liked that, apparently. You know, he began to have serious side effects from the long-term use of it. He was warned by a doctor to stop taking the laudanum. He didn't. He continued to have the side effects. They got worse. Um, haunting dreams, confusions about reality. Um, and it was said that, uh, you know, on the one hand, it may have catalyzed his creativity, but conversely, it detrimentally affected his mental health and his physical well-being. De Quincey was probably the most uh, overt of them all. He wrote a book called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Started uh, using it for a toothache in 1804. Um, in this book, The uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, he focused on the pleasures and pains um, that influenced his work through opium. Um, he was often encouraging people to try it. He was blamed when they subsequently did uh, and became addicted. Um, 
when laudanum became very inexpensive to purchase on the streets. Um, he was quoted as saying, happiness might now be bought for a penny. Um, he thought that it increased his ability to create new things uh, and to make these trips to a surreal world um, through his use of opium. So again, we see this uh, you know, in literature. Um, we're back to medicine by 1827. I mean, Merck is still in business today, you know, large pharma. Um, you know, 200 years ago, we see them beginning to commercially manufacture morphine in Germany. So we see that U.S. Customs places a duty fee on it uh, in 1840, but then uh, in 1839 until about 1860, we have the two opium wars. And again, the history of these is, is really interesting. Um, the first opium war um, arose because the Chinese were attempting to suppress the opium trade within China. You know, how dare they? Um, the Brits didn't like that because the Brits were making a ton of money off of the opium trade in China. Um, so there was this uh, uh, conflict that arose, this first uh, opium war between them. Uh, the Chinese were not very strong militarily. Um, the British were much stronger. So the British came, uh, destroyed a blockade uh, of a, the Pearl River, uh, estuary at Hong Kong went on up to Canton. Uh, it was obvious that the Chinese couldn't stop them. Um, they negotiated the Nanking Treaty at that point in time. Um, and as a result of this, again, as a result of Great Britain winning this first opium war, um, fought largely over their wanting to continue to market opium in China, um, Britain ended up with control of Hong Kong, control of not one but five ports. They only had one before, but they had five at the end of this, uh, including Shanghai. So 10, 15 years later, there's a second opium war. At this point in time, there's a rebellion going on within China, so China is focused on that. You know, they're still, I think, trying to maintain some control over the opium trade internally. Great Britain sees this as the perfect time to uh, uh, engage them once again because they're focused on their own uh, internal conflict. Uh, France looks at it and says, yeah, this is good for us to join in too. So again, not unlike the, the first opium war, this time you have uh, England and France together. Um, and again, you have an outcome uh, in which uh, they uh, gain more land, they gain more ports, uh, and they're seated the Kowloon Peninsula adjacent to Hong Kong. So, um, you know, again, we talk about how uh, monumental this has been throughout history, and, and we see that, you know, by the uh, 1860s, the Civil War in the U.S., morphine is being used as a battlefield anesthetic, you know, probably with good intention, but you have a lot of soldiers coming away addicted after the war. You know, 1874, people realized that you could make heroin by boiling morphine. 
Um, and then Bayer, here we are again to pharma and medicine. Um, Bayer is the uh, first to commercially produce heroin. 1905, the U.S. bans opium. Well, what happens is a thriving black market. You know, who gets involved in that? Well, the mafia, among other people. You know, the 1950s, again, the, the politics of it is so interesting. The U.S. and France and the Golden Triangle, Laos and Thailand and Burma, now Myanmar, you know, we're apparently providing uh, the uh, warlords with ammunitions and arms and air transport, uh, much of which is used to support their opium business. Um, with the belief that uh, they are resistant to the spread of communism within this uh, golden triangle. Um, and the opium trade flourishes and uh, the market becomes glutted in terms of illegal heroin as a result of this. You know, back to pharma by 1950, uh, Percodan, combination of oxycodone and aspirin is first uh, approved by the FDA. You know, the government is passing some regulations. They're not really accomplishing anything. They established the DEA. Um, 1978, Vicodin, hydrocodone, and Tylenol, acetaminophen, was first uh, produced. The 1990s, you know, the undertreatment of pain. You know, and I can tell you, I graduated from medical school in 1980. And this was very much my training in medical school was, you know, we undertreat pain. You know, do not let people suffer. Do not let people be in pain. You know, whatever they need for their pain, treat it. You know, it's the humane thing to do. And I mean, this, this was the training that I had, you know, completing medical school in 1980. You know, and so you have this mindset. Um, and you have pharma taking advantage of that mindset to develop all of these uh, uh, newer narcotics. And again, this is an important part of how we end up where we are today in terms of the opioid crisis. Oxycontin comes out in 1995. This has been a huge part of it. You see it's uh, marketed by Purdue Pharma as a safer alternative. But if you look down there to 2007, you see, criminal charges were actually brought against Purdue and three of their executives for misleading and defrauding physicians and consumers. They paid $635 million in civil and criminal fines, and their executives got the perfunctory slap on the wrist, misdemeanors and probation, but, uh, you know, an enormous uh, settlement nonetheless. 2016, finally the CDC weighs in, weighs in. The CDC publishes these guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. Um, and again, a large movement away from the training that I had, um, really saying, you know, you don't want to, you never start with these medicines. Uh, you really want to avoid them if you can. You really want to focus on psychosocial treatments uh, and non-narcotic alternatives when you're using medications is really the, uh, the anchors of this 2016 CDC document. The problem, you know, it was sort of shutting the gate when the horses were already out. You know, the horses went out a long time ago. So again, you see there, when you just sort of take this trip through history, you know, um, almost 6,000 years of history, um, you see uh, opiates uh, surviving, thriving, 
you know, 6,000 years later. Again, greed, self-indulgence, you know, this is, is largely what uh, drove the, them thriving. So let's talk a little bit about these uh, opiates and opioids. Um, you really can use the terms interchangeable. Opiates tends to describe the natural compounds, so that would be poppy, that would be morphine. Um, when you either alter that or you chemically synthesize related compound, uh, these are the ones that tend to be called opioids. Uh, in terms of actual practice, it doesn't matter if you distinguish between opiates and opioids. You can see there a list of the common opioids, uh, many of which you'll be familiar with. There's a list there for slang terms for opiates and uh, opioids. You know, what, uh, what are they used for and what happens when you use them? Well, you know, there's really only two medicinal uses for them. One is analgesia, pain control. The other is cough suppression. You know, codeine is in a lot of cough syrups. It is an effective cough suppressant. Um, and then the analgesic effect is, by and large, what they're most commonly prescribed for. You know, what are the uh, other effects of it? Well, certainly when people use them chronically over time, when people overuse them, misuse them, you know, functional impairment is paramount. This can be financial, professional, vocational, educational, social, interpersonal, legal. Um, you know, these, uh, you just see any number of lives uh, uh, enormously impacted. And interesting when Larry asked you all to share what your interest and many of you shared a family member, you know, you've seen this firsthand. So, you know, this isn't news to you. You're, you're well aware of the kind of functional impairment that, uh, that can happen as a result of abuse, misuse of opiates. You know, physical signs, uh, people get what are called pinpoint pupils. They get constricted, they're tiny. Um, they're lethargic, they're drowsy. Uh, because of the drowsiness, they can't hold their head up. They have head nodding. Their speech can be slurred. You're probably not measuring their pulse, but if you did, you'd find it would be slow. You'd find that the more they took, the slower their respirations were. Their face could be red, they could be sweating, they'd be clumsy, they wouldn't be hungry. Um, they might be nauseous or even vomiting. Um, and again, this is just sort of at the, uh, uh, the non-dangerous levels. Um, obviously, as you move to the dangerous levels, the ultimate complication is death. Psychological and behavioral. Um, there is a euphoria uh, that goes along with these, and that's part of what's so reinforcing to individuals taking these. You know, even the analgesic effect is really interesting. You know, what people need to understand about the analgesic effect is it doesn't stop the pain. If you ask an individual if they still hurt, um, they're likely to say yes. But if you follow up with, does it bother you? No. It changes the subjective response to pain. It doesn't alter the pain itself. It's the subjective response to pain that it alters. Um, and again, this is, you know, taken another step above that, you can begin to see this uh, euphoria that uh, is really reinforcing in an addictive pattern. Um, but when you heard some of these romantic poets, you know, and just how goofy they got under the influence, 
you know, you see these other things, the paranoia, the confusion, irritability, moodiness. You know, long-term, uh, there's a lot of medical complications from the long-term use, organ damage, tolerance and dependence. You know, these are two terms just to understand their simple concepts. Tolerance simply means to have this level of effect. Over time, you have to take more and more and more medicine to achieve that level of effect. Your body gets used to it. Your body begins to override it. So you have to override the override by taking more. Um, and that's just to maintain the level of effect that you've had. You know, if you want more effect, then you really have to override it. So this is tolerance. Um, and dependence is a physiologic withdrawal when you stop taking it. Um, you know, and these are huge problems with the opiates. And again, the dependence, the physiologic withdrawal, you know, this is part of what makes it so difficult for people to come off of it because, you know, it's really unpleasant to go through opiate withdrawal. Um, so opiate withdrawal, early symptoms, agitation, anxiety, muscle aches, um, runny eyes, runny nose, sweating, yawning, craving for the drugs. Um, later symptoms, uh, abdominal cramping, diarrhea, dilated pupils, goosebumps. Now here's one you can dazzle your friends with. Instead of saying goosebumps, say piloerection. It's the medical term for goosebumps. So, um, you can get piloerected when you're uh, late in the uh, the withdrawal from opiates, again, nausea, vomiting, depression. Your shorter acting opiates, which are most of them, you know, if you don't use them, if you're addicted, um, you will start having withdrawal symptoms within 12 hours of your last use. If you're talking a longer acting one like methadone, you may have about 30 hours before you start having withdrawal symptoms. Um, but again, you know, you don't have a very big window before you're actively seeking. Um, something to, to head off the, uh, the opiate withdrawal. You know, the last thing I have in that section, and this is important to remember, when you see opiate withdrawal, it's dramatic to observe, and for people going through it, it has to be absolutely miserable. Um, it really isn't medically dangerous, by and large. It's really unpleasant. It's not medically dangerous. These people are, you know, they look like they're dying. They act like they're dying. They think they're dying, you know, and they're serious. It's a horrible thing to go through, but it's not medically dangerous. Unlike alcohol withdrawal, benzodiazepine withdrawal, you know, these are medical emergencies. People do die from those withdrawals. So, you know, this is not a medically dangerous withdrawal, by and large. And you see there, uh, you know, what uh, folks that are uh, overdosing uh, look like. Their speech is slurred, uh, they can't pay attention, they can't remember anything as it progresses. They may not be able to stay awake, they may actually go into a coma. Their uh, breathing becomes more and more shallow. Um, again, the pinpoint pupils. You're not going to be listening for bowel sounds, but if you were, you wouldn't hear them, um, you know, because it's just shutting everything down. And ultimately, it's the respiratory suppression. You know, they just stop breathing when the dose is high enough, and this is the terminal event. The numbers you see there, and, you know, we don't need to go through all of them, but, uh, you know, they're really uh, overwhelming 
the second one there, the number of overdose deaths related to heroin increased 533% between 2002 and 2016. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. You know, why did heroin deaths go up? Because heroin's dirt cheap. You know, the prescription opiates are expensive. You know, and what tends to happen is people get started on the prescription opiates, they get addicted to them, they can't afford to continue the prescription opiates, so they move over to heroin, which is, is much, much, much cheaper. Um, you know, look at the number there, 42,249 deaths in 2016 from opiate overdoses. Um, it's the leading cause of death uh, at this point in time for Americans under 50 years old. Uh, and I saw this little table, which I just threw in the handout, because I thought it was kind of compelling, and it gives some nice points of comparison. You know, the entirety of the Vietnam War, 58,200 people lost their lives. You know, in one year, 2016, 42,000 and some change. Um, died from opiate overdoses. You know, that same year you had 42,000 opiate overdose deaths. That was more than deaths uh, due to motor vehicle accidents. It's about the same number of deaths due to suicide. You know, fortunately people don't die of AIDS at this point because of medical treatment in the numbers that they did before. You know, the treatment is so much better now than it was before. Um, but when it was universally fatal, 1995 was the peak year. That year, 51,000 people died of AIDS. Again, it's a little more, but it's not too far off the number that died in 2016 from opiate overdoses. You know, breast cancer, women, um, you know, there's not a single one of us here that uh, uh, hasn't been touched in some way by that. Um, somebody in a family, somebody we love. Um, and again, the number of lives lost to breast cancer in 2016 um, was less than the number of lives lost to opiate overdoses in 2016. So it just, it gives you a sense of the, the magnitude. You know, the next page you see that uh, if uh, people are prescribed these medicines, 21 to 29 percent of them will go on to misuse them. 8 to 12 percent of them will go on to become addicted. Um, uh, you can see some of the uh, increases there. Uh, 30 percent from July 16 through 17, uh, September 17 in 52 areas and 45 states. Midwest region saw the greatest increases, 70 percent in this period of time. Saw it in large cities, but see it everywhere. Um, not just limited to the cities. Um, you know, the next two that you see there were local, so I threw those on, you know, from the Colorado Medical Society, and this is new, this was December 2018. They said for every opiate death in Colorado, there were 10 treatment admissions for opiate abuse, 32 ED visits for opiate misuse or abuse, uh, and 130 people who abused them. Um, prescription opiates and 825 who abused non-prescription opiates. And then uh, this article that was in the Denver Post late in 2017 talking about an 80% jump in newborns in Colorado going through opioid withdrawal at the point in time that they were born. Um, so 
you know, we could, could go on and on. Some of you probably saw, it was a couple of weeks ago, Denver Post, the headline story, overdoses overwhelming. The state's opioid epidemic is morphing into a broader crisis. And talking a lot about, you know, these same kinds of numbers. You know, how did it happen? Well, we've already talked some about that. Um, you know, how did it come from Mesopotamia to mainstream, Main Street, USA? Well, there was money in it, and people are self-indulgent. Again, we come back to the same answers, but they're really the ones that tend to, to explain it. Um, you know, in more recent times, you had this uh, view of modern medicine saying don't let people suffer. You had a pharmaceutical industry that was uh, very open to market anything that doctors would prescribe, um, and it was a really toxic combination uh, of putting tons and tons and tons of these medicines out there. Um, and it wasn't in terms of pharma just uh, putting meds out there that doctors would prescribe, but they, you know, worsened it as well through terribly uh, misleading, fraudulent advertising as well, as evidenced by some of these enormous suits that we were talking about. Pill mills, um, you know, pill mills are basically a disreputable doctor, you know, and that's somebody that uh, you come, you give me $100, you walk out with a script for an opiate. Um, you know, and these were popping up all over the country, um, so not surprising. Um, again, the heroin market was changing. Um, the price of heroin was plummeting. Um, all of these uh, designer narcotics, pharma was charging out the wazoo for those, but uh, heroin was dirt cheap. And then, you know, one of the major game changers in terms of the lethality was fentanyl. Uh, and what you see there with fentanyl, it's 30 to 50 times more potent than heroin and 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. You know, and so there's people that are abusing it uh, straight out, but a lot of the products that they're abusing, the street products, are laced with fentanyl and they don't know it. Um, you know, and this is uh, a horrible combination. Okay, the last thing that I've got, or second to last here, I just put the changing faces. And again, I really appreciated, Larry, you know, chatting with you all about what you're interested in. And I think, you know, when many of you shared that your families have been touched by this or your friends, you know, that's really the point here. Um, you know, we've known for a long time the, uh, the Hollywood folks, um, John Belushi, Heath Ledger, Janis Joplin, you know, go down the list there. You know, these folks have made news for a long time. Um, these folks, though, really, I mean, they weren't a part of my inner circle, or I wasn't a part of theirs. I assume that's true for you all as well. Um, but what's changed is that, you know, where it used to be them, you know, now, uh, it's not just them. You know, now it's our mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, friends. You know, this is who it is at this point in time. You know, two stories I just pulled uh, just to make the point, and interestingly, both of these have a Colorado tie. Um, the first was in the Atlantic in November of 2017. Admiral James Winnefeld, retired U.S. Navy, ninth vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, his son was a freshman at the University of Denver. 
Um, his son died three days into his freshman year at the University of Denver. Um, Fentanyl-laden batch of heroin. There were a lot of deaths at the same time. I mean, it wasn't great that he was going after the heroin. The heroin itself, though, may not have been a terminal event for him, but laced with fentanyl, you know, he uh, died of an overdose. You know, the, the comment from the father, I helped run the most powerful military on earth, but I couldn't save my son from the scourge of opioid addiction. I mean, that's a really haunting comment when you really think about it, you know, for a parent to make that kind of a, of a comment. Um, and Eric Bowling, um, former cable news host, um, his son was a student at uh, CU in Boulder, again died of an overdose, uh, post-mortem had cocaine, marijuana, Xanax, um, and fentanyl. Again, there's the fentanyl. Um, and again, just, uh, you know, other than uh, having been on television, uh, you know, just uh, these are families not unlike our families. And I, th I think, again, the point when I put changing faces that I wanted you to, to really get a hold of, um, you know, again, this isn't just the famous folks anymore. Um, you know, this is your family, this is my family. Um, you know, and the church isn't insulated from these sorts of things. Um, there's very little that the church is actually insulated view from. You know, churches are made up of flawed people. Um, and, uh, you know, this problem uh, is touching uh, those we love uh, as well as everyone else. You know, quickly, treatment. There's sort of two focuses of treatment. One is abstinence, just stop using it. The other is harm reduction. Harm reduction says, well, maybe you won't stop using it, but you can at least reduce the danger to yourself. Needle exchange is an example of harm reduction. You know, if you're going to use needle, dirty needles, uh, there's a lot more risk to you than if you at least use clean needles every time you inject. So that's an example of a harm reduction intervention. Psychosocial, you know, counseling is important, but when you're talking about these kinds of addictions, counseling alone probably, you know, isn't going to be adequate. Self-help groups have long been a mainstay, you know, NA when you're talking about uh, uh, opiate uh, abuse. Um, you know, these uh, are really remarkable in terms of the impact for a lot of people. They're not for everyone, but, uh, you know, there certainly are some uh, incredible results of people uh, in 12-step groups. Uh, motivational interviewing, cognitive behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment. These are just different therapeutic approaches. Contingency management is kind of an interesting one. You know, one of the things with addiction is you know if you're addicted that at some point something really terrible might happen. But when you get ready to use again, you say, well, this might happen, but it's never happened before, so I'm probably okay this time. With contingency management or contingency contracting, you contract with this person. You say, what's the most feared outcome? Well, I'm afraid my boss will find out because I'm going to get fired if my boss does. Okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to write a letter to your boss telling your boss that you're an addict. You're going to give it to me. You're going to do monitored urines, and the first time one of them is dirty, I'm sending the letter to your boss. 
And the point there is you're taking the most feared consequence, which isn't immediate otherwise, because you always say, it never happened before. I can do it again this time. I'll be okay. But it's contingent the very next time you use your most feared consequence will happen. So it's sort of extreme, but, you know, it is something that's done sometimes in, uh, in addiction treatment. Um, you know, you see there's some of the more intensive ones. There are residential programs. There's intensive outpatient programs. Uh, you know, sober living communities. Uh, people don't live the rest of their lives in those, but, you know, when they uh, establish a very early period of uh, being clean and sober, uh, you know, they may really need this this clean, sober community to support them, to sort of build up some inner strength that will sustain them um, when they move in the direction of more independent functioning. Medication-assisted therapies, you know, they're sort of the three mainstay medications there. Uh, methadone is probably the one that you're the most familiar with. You know, this is basically an opiate drug. It's a long-acting one. Um, it's given orally. Uh, you monitor people taking it. Um, it really is more often than not a harm reduction. You're simply substituting an addiction to, to, morphine, to uh, methadone for an addiction that isn't controlled, a controlled addiction versus an uncontrolled addiction, if you will. Um, although some people do taper off of, of methadone and, and get off altogether. Buprenorphine is a newer medication. Um, it sometimes stands alone. It's sometimes when you hear Suboxone, uh, it's a combination medication that has naloxone in it. In both cases, it's a partial agonist, meaning it does um, fill some opiate receptors, but not all of them. Um, it's also a partial antagonist, um, and the combination uh, does a couple of things. It blocks the withdrawal, um, but it also blocks the euphoric effect. And again, it's that euphoric effect that's so psychologically addiction, addicting. Now, Trexone, you know, simply blocks the uh, opiate response. You know, you can't do this until somebody is detoxified, but once they're detoxified, you know, they can be on Naltrexone, and the notion there is if they take it, it doesn't matter if they use, they're not going to get any effect because you've blocked the effect with the, with the naltrexone. So, you know, medicine is certainly not the uh, only part of treatment, but it's an important part uh, of treatment for many people. The last thing you see there, and again, this is really important, and particularly for any of you that have somebody close to you that you're worried about, you know, and this is more recent, the rescue naloxone or Narcan, which is probably what you've heard it uh, named. Um, basically, if somebody, you know, has a serious overdose and, you know, is really in peril of potential death, um, mostly it's a nasal inhalation. You know, anyone can squirt it up the nose. If somebody's unconscious, they can't do it themselves. Um, but you squirt it up the nose, and if the reason they're unconscious is because of the opiate overdose, you know, it will block the effect and, you know, will be life-saving uh, for the individuals. It's important enough, you know, you can buy it without prescription. You can go to a pharmacy and, uh, and get it. Um, you know, Larry mentioned Jefferson Center. Uh, all of our sites, we've put uh, defibrillators in. Um, 
you know, sudden cardiac death uh, oftentimes would be reversible if uh, a defibrillator was there and uh, somebody knew how to use it. So we've made the investment in putting those in. Well, we've now added the Narcan to each one of those as well because, again, it's a, uh, another sudden death that uh, if um, someone is there, sees it happen, uh, has the tool in hand, you know, it's potentially life-saving again. We've never used our defibrillators. I hope we never use our Narcan, um, but I feel much better knowing that we have both of them um, just in the event that we come to a situation in which we would need them. Last thing, you know, I just wanted to sort of tie it into the, uh, the spiritual a little bit. You know, here to now I've been talking as a physician. You know, now I'm talking as a Christian. So um, I'll declare that uh, change of pace up front. You know, how do we respond to it as a church? Um, well, I think the first thing that we have to reconcile with is, you know, what really is the root of addictive disorders? Um, is it primarily a moral failing or is it primarily a medical illness? Um, you know, the data is pretty good that it's very much a medical illness. You know, the data's been coming in for a long time. You know, there's genetic studies, these run in families, uh, you know, there's very much the, the vulnerabilities. So these really are medical conditions. However, if somebody with this genetic predisposition, this medical vulnerability never ever used to begin with, they never would have <coughs> developed an addictive disorder. So, you know, we can't take human will out of it altogether either. I mean, there is this, this interplay that goes on. You know, most of you have heard of Pete Maravich, and, uh, you know, I heard him speaking years ago, and I've always remembered what he said, and I think it's, you know, so important. Um, he had developed an alcohol problem over the course of his life. And he said with regard to alcohol, he said, with my first drink, I gave alcohol a toehold, and then it became a foothold, and then it became a stronghold, and ultimately it utterly consumed me. You know, but you think about the toehold, you know, and how it grows and how it blossoms and how it becomes bigger than life over time. Um, and I think, you know, we have to look at all addictive disorders in the same way, whether we're talking about alcohol, whether we're talking about opiates. Um, again, I believe in the medical model, the disease model. This really is a disease state. I also believe, you know, that for most of the things that we do, we have some responsibility. If I smoke like a chimney and develop lung cancer, well, you know, it's a real illness, but I bear a lot of the responsibility for having chosen to smoke like a chimney. You know, and most of the things that we do, there's health risk and health promoting habits that, uh, you know, we need to aim to increase the health promoting and decrease the, the health risk habits. What I really thought about though, and, um, you know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is John 8. Um, you know, Jesus is there, um, and the uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring this woman caught in adultery. It, I mean, picture, you know, what it was like for her. She had to be panicked, terrorized, you know. Um, 
become, I'm sure, just roughly treating her, bring her up, shove her in front of Jesus, you know, say, we caught this woman in adultery, you know, we're going to stone her. Any problem with that? They were testing Jesus, you know, so what did Jesus do? Well, he kneels down, he starts drawing in the ground. I don't know if he was drawing, writing, but, you know, there was great dramatic effect in not responding immediately, making them wait a little bit. You know, so he draws in the sand, looks up, says, yeah, you're right. You know, she's guilty. That's the punishment. That's the law. You're right. Here's what you do. You know, the one of you that's never sinned, you throw the first rock. You know, one by one. And I think it says it's oldest to youngest or youngest to oldest. It's one or the other, but that's the order in which they leave. You know, Jesus goes back to drying in the sand. You know, he looks at the woman, you know, and no one's there but her. You know, he said, where is everyone? She says, they all left. Um, you know, and what Jesus, or what Jesus said, not where is everyone, he says, you know, where are your accusers? Where are those who were accusing you? They all left. You know, Jesus looks her in the eye and says, I don't accuse you either, but, you know, go and sin no more. And I think it's, when I think of these issues with the church, I mean, I think, I think the church is way too judgmental, you know, and I'm not talking about, I don't know your church, but if your church is like most churches, you probably have an element of that because almost every church does, you know. I think we'd do better to let God do the judging and for us to really show the love of Christ to people. And, you know, I think that this is a great example of that. You know, if uh, Jesus was uh, dealing, had they brought a heroin addict to him, you know, I think he would have responded to the heroin addict the same way he responded to this woman caught in adultery. Um, and I think that really, you know, I think we're called to love these folks. I think we're called to embrace these folks. I think we're called to reach out with the arms of Christ to these folks. Um, I mean, they have a part in this. Um, and that's part of the Christian message. You know, you can bring the message, but they're going to ultimately have to make the decision. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, these are folks that need that love uh, desperately. And I think, uh, you know, in terms of how the church deals with it, uh, you know, I think the church welcomes people with these problems. I think the church embraces people with these problems. I think the church, you know, tries to minister to people with these problems. You know, tries to help them uh, connect with the resources that might allow them ultimately to overcome these problems. Um, I think that's, you know, the where the the role of the church in dealing with the opioid crisis.